Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margo S. Scott, psychotherapist and improviser, and today I have an ultra special guest I'm going to schmooze with. It's Amy Seam. And Amy is the author of an incredible book that came out 20 years ago, but you can still get it. Whose Improv Is It Anyway? Hi, Amy. Hello, how are you? Good. And where are you calling in from today? Well, I'm in Minnesota. I'm in um, a small town that's about an hour and 15 minutes southwest of Minneapolis. So I am able to enjoy the improv that's going on in Minneapolis. There's some good stuff that goes on there. Now, is that where Jill Bernard is? It is. Yes, yeah, she's wonderful. She's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, but I know, like myself, you're a Jersey girl. You're from yes. Tenafly, New Jersey. I am. <laughs> yeah. My dad commuted from Tenafly to Manhattan. Um, it's kind of was a, we would call a bedroom town to some extent, you know, a place where lots of commuters um, would live as was close enough to New York City. Absolutely. Um, but not only that, I mean, there were other people who, who lived and worked in Tenafly, but it's this it's a fun it was a, a fun place to grow up i bet it was and i always think of leslie gore from Tenafly. it's my yeah. party <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're a contemporary of hers or not but no. no um so tell me about i i love to hear the improv journey but and talk about your your book as well sure. but tell me a little bit about your family life growing up in Tenafly and what that was like for you um, your, your family well, yeah um, I had three younger siblings. I'm the oldest. Um, my father was an attorney and he, he specialized in labor law. My mother, um, had four kids and then went back to law school after my youngest sister was in first grade and became a lawyer who specialized in women's rights. And this was, you know, kind of in the 60s and 70s. So it was early on. And um, you couldn't win an argument in our house <laughs> because there are so many lawyers, you know. But um, I do remember it. Uh, I was maybe 13. My mother was very um, committed to the feminist. She had discovered the feminist movement. Uh -huh. And I at that time, I kind of resented it. <laughs> so I was like, mother, I'm not going to say chairperson. That's just <laughs> stupid. That sounds really dumb. I'm, do you want me to say person hole cover? You know, I was like, <laughs> very annoyed. What do you mean you're not going to do the laundry or you shouldn't have to do the laundry? <laughs> so it's funny because now uh, with my daughter, I, it, you know, I'm reliving some stuff from the other side in a way you know where she expects certain things of me because that's what moms are supposed to do and I say but I have a full-time job dear you know? <laughs> so it is very interesting I you know I find myself resisting some of the newer language requirements you know and then I'm trying to remember my own reaction you know, years ago, it's it's funny. Well, I was in Manhattan when they were having the first parades with Gloria and Bella and all of that crowd. So right, right, part of that generation, certainly. Sure. And how old is your daughter? She is eighteen. She's in um, at, at USC uh -huh. in uh, Los Angeles. So, and it's just our, our little family is just the two of us. So with with her gone, it's a little lonely. Aww. But, um, but yeah, she's doing well. She, she, her career goal is to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what, and how do you come from such a, a social justice family? We, my parents were very into uh, civil rights and, you know, um, my mother did all this work for, um, you know, women's causes and so on. And I, you know, how are you coming from, from, uh, you know, from my upbringing and so on and just having no higher cause, <laughs> higher purpose <laughs> in your, in your career goals. 
she said oh that's what all of our generations is. <laughs> like it's so it's interesting she's a gen z a gen yeah. z kid yeah yeah that's funny well in your family growing up you had i'm sure lively discussions around the dinner table but was there any artistic artists in the family at all oh well yeah i mean both my parents parents were um involved in theater in college and uh you know there's a very fine line between being lawyers and being performers in a yeah, lot of ways yeah. right um and my uh, my mother's father my mother's parents both were involved in theater um and kind of regional and and uh community theater my grandfather kept moving from ohio to east and east and east um to get better opportunities to be directing he was a, a director really and ended up in brooklyn and uh where my mother met my father in high school in brooklyn so uh so the so that whole theater thing and then i guess my parents were in little musicals in in high school and uh, my mother played the lead in The Good Person of Szechuan <laughs> uh, at Mount Holyoke. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and but but uh, they didn't they didn't see it as a a career per se. But just there's the we've always our family's always loved theater and living just outside New York City. My parents, you know, took us to Broadway shows all the time. You know, so even all four of us, the prices weren't quite as exorbitant oh, as no. they are now. Oh, no. It was a little more possible to do that. And I remember as a kid, but I think I think all four of us were there. We saw the Peter Brook uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, with, which is a famous production. Right. And I do remember it vividly. I mean, they were all in white. They had we were on trapezes. They 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 had this thing you could spin and it would make a ooh sound with these <laughs> colorful things. And then at one point, all the fairies ran out into the theater, um, and that was thrilling and exciting. We were in a box because I think it was the only seats we could still get. We were in uh, the furthest left box, and. Um, puck was climbing along the balcony wow. during the part wow. and he came toward us but then you could see that the that his cue had had happened like he was supposed to go back onto the stage and but we were the you know kids were like looking so excited and hopeful because he was shaking hands along the way right and we were like you're coming to us, aren't you? You know, and so he kind of came over. He was shaking hands like with both hands, and then quickly, you know, shook our hands and then jumped back onto the stage. And I remember my mother saying, "You know, he didn't really have time." And so we felt so honored that he yes. <laughs> he didn't really have time, but he knew how important it was to us that oh, he came there. That's so lovely. And it reminds yeah. me of the fact of audience participation and improv, which we'll get to. Yes. In some oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I grew up in North Caldwell, also very close to the city. And so the first show I ever saw, and this is not about me, but we'll go to me for a second. Okay. I saw The Sound of Music with Mary Martin in it. Oh, my. Oh, wow. That, I was like eight or nine years old and that uh, and every year my birthday was in August we would always go see one of the latest shows and wonderful. so what a wonderful time that was okay. so how exciting and so you're kind of from a brainiac family if I can use that term um so during high school did you when did you start getting into acting and when were you interested in drama yourself well, I always was interested. I would do uh, little plays with my younger siblings, you know, and <laughs> tell them what to do. I remember doing the Emperor's New Clothes, you know, and my youngest sister was um, maybe three or four, and her she had just one line: "He has no clothes on." Notice it, yeah. But she did well. I. Um, 
Yeah, so it, it was always part of what we did. I, I wasn't really part of the in crowd in high school, so I didn't end up doing much theater until my senior year there. But when I went to college, I made up my mind that I was going to audition for everything and do everything. And I went to Wesleyan um, University in Connecticut yes. and um, had a wonderful student theater where you could um, put on your own shows. I mean, I en ended up directing something every semester uh, from my second semester freshman year. Wow. And that was a great experience, yeah. I bet it was. So where, is that, where did you take your first improv class? Was that at Wesleyan? It was, it wasn't even a class. This is interesting because it was so early on in the kind of the spread of improv, right? I mean, we improv, um, Can I ask you Chicago what, style, yeah. Sorry, I was talking over. Can, what decade were you in college? Can I ask in you In the mid to mid late seventies. So, and being a historian of improv, I'll say that's before the big diaspora of, yes. of improv to where there's an improv thing in every city and, you know, in every country that had not happened yet. And that was, boy, I remember too, um, gathering in, in our, uh, our dorm complex lounge, everyone gathering to watch Saturday Night Live because it was such a phenomenon and yes. we were all so excited about it so saturday night live was a big um catalyst for more people wanting to do improv because people understood that many of those performers had come through second city or come through the improv process even though they weren't really improvising in in saturday night live so i had um there were a couple of guys who and I did, I directed shows and I was in some shows. Um, never really got leading parts, you know. Um, and they approached me and said, well, you know, you're the only woman on campus that's funny. So would you want to join our improv troupe that we're forming? Because, that you know, so it was very early kind of um, college improv troupe. So I said, you know, sure. And we we did some improv, but there was a, it was very um, stressful, actually, um, because they knew what they wanted to do. And then if it was convenient and they needed a woman, you know, in their scene, then it was fine for me to be there. But if I broke in or tried to initiate anything, that was not that was not cool. Yeah. And there was one other woman in, that they brought in who was very um, deferential. And I remember that they were doing a scene from like the a Godfather-esque scene. They were at a cafe talking about, you know, organized crime. And I said to her, let's go and be characters who kind of go to the same cafe and say hello and do, you know, and so we started to do that and they were furious that we had ruined their um, very intense organized crime scene that they were doing. And wow. so at a certain point, um, I was invited to leave the group. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my interest in why it works differently for men and for women very often not always but very often very often yeah so there's a story you tell in your book and i'm not sure where it happened in your career where somebody was a male was playing a sultan and as you entered yes. with a notebook and pen you were preparing to say something or you know yes. he told you to get on your knees um you were in the harem and you chose to get on your knees, even though it was abhorrent to you. Can you tell right. me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Story? So, you know, fast forward, um, and I had a theater company in Connecticut, and I was doing uh, feminist theater, devised feminist theater and Shakespeare, um, but using improvisation because 
it was a kind of um, feminist form in my in my view. It was a way of co-creating an original piece about our lives. You know, from from my perspective, it was all about sharing the the creative process. And but these young guys who were part of the theater said, "We oh oh, we should have an improv troupe. It's the latest thing, you know." And I said, "Okay," and I'll be in it for a while. And I was in it for a while. But um, as the artistic director of this company, I, I was uneasy about some things that, that were happening. Like, uh, and I and I would say to some of the guys, like. Um, you know, wife beating isn't funny. And can we not uh, make that be part of the joke? And, and I would often get a lot of pushback, you know, it just happens, you know, that's, that's improvisation, it just comes out, you know, we can't control it. And you're censoring us, you know, Um, and I I didn't want to be pegged as a censor. My God, yeah. One of the guys I particularly had uh issues with you know and and he who particularly felt I was trying to censor him uh and I were in a an improv scene together we were paired to do a scene and we got a suggestion from the audience of the location and someone said sultan's harem and I um, went on stage, and as you said, you know, I was, I was, I had a notebook and pen that I was showing, and I was going to interview the Sultan, and he said, "Wife, on your knees," very aggressively, and I knew that he was doing this to me. I mean, this was not only the character speaking to the character. This was also him personally getting power over a woman, right, who was telling him uh, how to do his improv or who was the artistic director of the theater. And I could feel it so strongly. But you're supposed to say yes and. And that's how I learned it, right? I that's you're you're supposed to agree to everything. And uh you don't want to be con- accused of being a bad team player or blocking, uh, or you know, blocking. And so, uh, you know, things went through my head, but I just didn't know how to not get on my knees, you know, and I was very humiliated uh-huh. in that experience. And it was really sort of the seed of what happened quite a number of years later when um, I had to come up with a topic for my dissertation uh, when I went back to get my PhD. And uh, I said, you know, I really want to explore why improv is so sexist. And my advisor said, uh, why is that news? Why is that worthy of, of a dissertation? Everything's sexist. So, so what's special here? You know, what's the research here? And I said, well, because how you're taught improv is how it's all about mutual support and um, trust and co-creation and um listening and all you know all of these things are what uh it's supposed to be like I mean especially if you look at Spolin and then when you get into it it doesn't always work that way and I know a number of women who feel like there's a boys club that you can never quite be a member of in in the experience and I'm not saying it's the only way it's happening anywhere but I think it's happening I think it's not just me. And after I did a whole bunch of research with a lot of interviews in Chicago and um, other cities, um, I found out, no, it isn't just me. (laughs) You know, it was a widespread issue. You know, that story just brought tears to my eyes 
and thinking of all the women who've been humiliated and uh, ignored in improv and in life in general, but that's just such a poignant story that just etched in my brain now. But you overcame it because you're, we're survivors, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Gloria Gaynor, if you remember her. I was, uh... <laughs> um, so were you a, a history major? What were you, where were you? I was a theater, no, a theater major. And I, um, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I don't look like a leading lady. Um, I, I was frustrated that I wasn't being cast because I thought, I, I know I'm a good performer. But I'm not, you know, the ingenue that people are looking for, you know. And uh, improvisation gives you the opportunity to create your own work and create, you know, create something for yourself to be in, you know. And that was the early part of what I was what doing. So when was it your advisor that said everything sexist anyway was? Was that a man or a woman? I want. It was ask. a woman. It was a woman. But that was many years later. If you're asking about what I majored in in college, I mean, so in college I was a theater major. I knew I I wanted to do theater, and as I was mentioning, um, but I didn't get cast very often, even though I thought I was pretty good. Um, yeah. I wasn't the right type for things and so forth. And I moved more and more into directing, which is what my grandfather did. So I had a, a model of what yes. he used yeah. to show me that he was blocking things by moving pennies around on a um, a drawing of the set, you know? So I had that kind of memory of him. So I started directing and I was directing shows from my second semester freshman year. Um, and I did some performing and I did I created a couple of cabarets for myself to be in. All right, people. I love it. Yeah, there was one called Femininity, which was for women, and we were exploring, uh, you know, and and the cabarets were finding songs from all various sources and then putting them together and making a a little story or a little way that it all held together. Um, and uh, that's something I've done a lot of, and also I have a very deep uh i don't know treasury of of knowledge of of musicals and of you know uh pop standards of the <laughs> 50s 40s because of my parents record collection so i would you know i would be able to sort of like let's pull the uh, songs from all these classic locations and put them together um and that show was very very well received it was really really popular uh, on campus and that's wonderful so, yeah. i'm yeah. taking it you love musical improv as well you know i i don't do it uh or ha didn't direct it or didn't you know initiate it because i don't play any instrument or i can't you know i can't i can't really be the music director of something i'm a, I'm a music appreciator you know and i sing um but um but we did do um musical um i don't know what you call it i mean um i guess some people call them jukebox musicals or, or something musicals that we would create using song you know songs that were already written but from other sources and stuff so we had a french cabaret called Cafe de Classe. This is a <laughs> theater company in Connecticut. That was one of our, you know, our money makers. We would do these cabarets to fund, you know, then then I could do a feminist play after that. You know what I mean? We could alternate um, between the ones that would be financially more successful and the ones that were more political maybe but which and and typically were pretty popular for um a certain audience you know oh that's amazing and wonderful have you written plays yourself i have actually yeah i mean uh gosh when i was way back in uh college i wrote uh, a play based on jewish folk tales for oh. children a children's play oh. 
And then I was doing the summer, I was being an intern for the Perry Street Theater in the village, small little theater. I and know it. I know it. They happened to be doing a children's theater, you know, series. And I um, said, hey, you could do mine. And so my play you know, had a New York <laughs> run of among three other, you know, children's plays that they, they put on that summer. But yeah, I've written um, quite a number of plays and um, in, uh, during my MFA, I wrote um, a play about Tiresias, the blind seer from Oedipus Rex, you know who, yes, who that yes, is. Yes. And in the early, Tiresias' early life, um, he, um, Zeus and Hera ask him, who gets more pleasure out of sex, the man or the woman? And he says, the woman gets more pleasure and Hera angers Hera. So she turns him into a woman and he's a woman for a while. Uh, and he, oh no, I mean, I think actually what happens is he kills a sacred snake and that's why he's turned into a woman to punish him. Uh, and then he's turned back into a man. Anyway, he, he he's a woman for a while and then he tur get, turns back into a man. And I was fascinated by that whole phenomenon, you know, and I I wrote a comic play about, about it, which um, then my first job was to be artistic director of a civic theater in Jackson, Michigan. <laughs> and I did the, the whole season that they had already chosen. I directed all those plays. And then I put this play on, my Tiresias play. Yes. So that was an early, early-ish experience. But, you know, in the last 20 years, um, here in Minnesota, I've put on, what I need is usually some kind of um, goal, like it's, 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 uh, it's opening, you know, like here, it, here's the opportunity to put it on, now write it you know, uh -huh. rather than being able to just sort of write on, on spec and, and send it out to places. Yeah. So we have um, the Minnesota Fringe Festival. Yes. And so I would, I would get a slot in it in the Fringe Festival and then write a play in time for, for it. You know, I would write the play after getting the spot. Um, so I did about six of those. So yeah, I mean, I um, yeah, I would say I'm a playwright, but I haven't focused on it in. A, in well, you're you're a woman of many talents. <laughs> yeah. Playwright, improviser. Um, yeah. I'm gonna take us back in time a little bit now. When did you first get hold of Viola Spolin's Bible? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think we had it um a, around when we were doing um our improv in Connecticut and I think it was okay so actually after college I I went straight into an MFA at Northwestern which is right outside Chicago yeah. and um that's really where I I saw some Chicago improv. I saw the Wam Yu, um, the Meow was a, I guess Meow was the name of the improv troupe that performed at Northwestern and uh, was more introduced to, to her, her book and her, her stuff. So I, 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 I got to see a, a bunch of improv. It's funny because I've been in and out of, um, of improv, you know, in college, but then back again, and then in, you know, grad school, and then back again to other kinds of theater, you know, um, my theater company, and then, um, so, uh, but that experience in my theater company um, made me want to understand it better, made me want to understand the dynamics and what's going on, because I had always thought of it 
as something that was very idealistic. Um, and then my personal experience, both in college and in my theater company, was so um, disappointing in terms of the just the the power plays that went on. Um, that it 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 I wanted to understand that better, and that became ultimately many years uh, later in my PhD, which I did after the theater company. I mean, I did um, after going through all of it um, to try to understand it better, yeah. yeah it's, it's funny to me how people do improv without being introduced to Spolin. And I had met a young couple a few years ago and they had just come from a theater, I won't name it, in Chicago. And uh, I said, uh, what kind of Spolin things did you learn? And they said, who's Spolin? Oh no. Oh my God. No. Yeah. That's You're two weeks in an intensive and you've never heard of Spolin. So it was kind of a, I'm a big Spolin aficionado. And, mm-hmm. um, but I really identify with your story so much, not being picked, not being quite the face they're looking for when I would try out for plays and things like that. And, um, I actually wrote some, um, murder dinner theater murder mysteries which i could star in to be in a show that's right that's right you can create your own thing to be in and um and then improvisation uh it has the same opportunity to at least be uh in something where you're choosing the role and you're you're choosing what to do you know i mean Exactly. That's more part of the appeal. So let's get to your book, because this is one of the most thorough books on the history of improv and the different schools and your own thoughts and with a feminist slant to it. And um, as a, I'm a social worker, so, you know, my uh, my heart goes to Hull House, Spolin mm-hmm. and Eva Boyd, which yes. I, you know, the 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 mother of social work, the mother of improv, the mother of playing games, it all stems from that social work. And in the beginning with people like David Shepard and the Compass, it was more egalitarian. They wanted to reach out to working people, not have a highfalutin show where you had to dress up and this, but to bring it to the theater. So what did you learn about that time period? Because it ultimately wasn't exactly successful, but can you speak a little bit about the early days and the, it's fascinating because there really was kind of a a very idealistic idea behind it um and this is a a kind of a pattern that we see later so it's fascinating to to see it unfold but david shepherd he he was a very unreal (laughs) idealistic person (laughs) he wanted to create theater of the people for the people you know he wanted to uh, have ordinary working people be on stage and um, take comedia-based improvised plays into the communities um, of working people and so on. Um, And he hooked up with Paul Sills, who was Viola Spolin's son, um, who himself was intrigued by Brecht, who uh, Brecht's ideas and yes. the idea that um, you would have a cabaret style theater because you didn't want to have people sitting in passive rows just receiving a play. They should be maybe, he called it a smoker's theater, which is <laughs> not, not how we see smoking today, but um, the idea that, um, and he also compared it to sports. He said, you know, when you're watching a game, you kind of say, hey, he should have done it this way. What's wrong with him? You know, um, I'm rooting for this guy, you know, and you you even shout and you, you're engaged in this very visceral way. And he said, theater should be like that. It shouldn't be like sitting in these bourgeois <laughs> um, velvet seats and saying to yourself, well, it's just the way it is, you know, the, 
I can't change anything I'm seeing. You know, I'm not that they're showing something that is too bad, but um, what could I do? Right. Um, and so Brecht wanted to change that attitude. And and, and uh, later, Augusto Boal uh, yes. Yes. follows this up. But the idea that um, you should be aroused by the by theater and the demo you know the uh, portrayal of injustice should should um upset you and make you and uh make you want to actively um change the world you know um and he and and brecht really felt that the way theater was happening uh, conventional theater happening was happening was was in fact a way to sort of make the public docile, you know, like make the public say, "Well, yes, this reflects how things are," you know, rather than things should not be this way. I initiate social change. Exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was before you continue, and this is fascinating. I didn't David Shepard go into like the stockyards in Chicago and really yeah. Talk- he was, yeah, he, he was a real, he came from a wealthy family. He had a, some kind of a trust fund, you know, but he just wanted to, I don't know, get, get into uh, using theater to reach the working, you know, work, the working class. Um, but he, he, he didn't really know how to do it. And often he would sort of show up or try to do it. And the people he was trying to serve were kind of like, what's this? You know, I'm not, I'm not weren't, weren't interested in what he wanted to give them. Right. And so he, he hooks up with Paul Sills and they, and they start to use violas and techniques. Um, and they start, improvising partly from Shepard's interest in in commedia but what they succeed in doing and what their theater actually attracts are the intelligentsia around Hyde Park I mean around the Chicago area because they were all University of Chicago people and um and it became this witty um social satire Right. Rather than you know a gritty um, um, political genre, and you know when um, you set out to do something and you and you find certain projects that you're doing have a, a great reaction. I mean, I think that they they went in that direction because it, it was working and they had a very um, enthusiastic following. Whereas what David Shepard's I- ideals were, um, first of all, uh, didn't, didn't actually attract the audience he was trying to serve, but even then weren't uh, going to uh, attract people who could pay for tickets either. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, yeah. There's an, a story about David Shepard visiting the St. Louis Compass, where which was an offshoot of the Compass Players, and um, Del Close was in the St. Louis one, and and um, Lane May was, and he saw that it was this you know very sophisticated cabaret with with very very comic um, content, and he said you've you've ruined my dream to them you've ruined my dream because he didn't want it to be a commercial uh comedy he wanted it to be <laughs> you know yep. political and, and 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 change the world stuff so and ironically david shepherd is also the originator of what became improv olympic Absolutely, yeah. So he keeps being this idealistic Johnny Appleseed kind of of yes. starting something up 
and then having it uh, get started and then be revised to be more more popular or more commercial than his initial vision was and he and he moves on and and people you know build it into something else something other than he initially thought but yeah and then he goes on to, <clears throat> to Canada where they still have the Canadian improv Olympics. yes they do they do wonderful I just I just love stories about David Shepard I got to speak to him once what oh a, nice yeah, what an incredible person he was now uh, did now let's bring up the name Del Close uh, Del Close can bring up a lot of feelings uh, from women improvisers and other improvisers. Did you actually get to interview Del Close? Was he? I attended one um, of his workshops, um, and uh, I didn't actually get to ask him questions, but I was able to see him interacting with the students and hear what he had to say to them. And the other thing that was sort of funny is he he would reference me because like and we have this person here who's trying to analyze what we're doing so you know and he would he would just you know uh comment about about that every now and then but um yeah he 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 was a fascinating um guy very very intelligent and um interested in transformation, interested in altered states in, you know, in uh, transcendence and so on. And whether you achieve that through the zone uh, and, and finding the group mind of improv or whether you achieve it through drugs or whether you achieve it through, you know, um, Zen, right. uh, he, he was, um, but you know he so he was part of the sort of altered reality movement of the 60s kind of yes. but um but starting he was in, starting in San Francisco yes yes, yes but he was so brilliant that he uh, such a theater person that he was able to translate some of that into something that actually um could be performed right could be a, a performance mode but yeah he was not it's i've talked to a number of people and, and, a, and a number of people say well he just flat out would say that women aren't funny you know and he wasn't interested in them. on the other hand susan messing says that he was always good to her and encouraged her you know so he, I think that he had, there were women that he supported, but it, it seems like the, his overarching attitude was um, not particularly <laughs> woman friendly. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that he, the kinds of things he were, was doing um, were very similar in some ways to what the surrealists did and what, or what the, some of the avant-garde movements um, of earlier days. And in some ways, woman is an image in that kind of work, is symbolic, is not a, is not a human person with, um, as a protagonist, right? But is uh, there to represent something. And one of the things in their the book um truth is truth in comedy or what is it called it is truth in comedy isn't it truth in comedy or comedy is truth anyway um he he talks about this the following patterns if you follow patterns and if you get group mind you access cosmic truth and you access the universal it's very committed to that and he's he, one example is that a, a pattern can start with someone seeing a woman's name on a bathroom wall, you know, call so-and-so this woman. And then through associations, we move to 
other images and other images until the, the guy who, who originally read um, this woman's name on the, on the bathroom wall has, has had to go to war, right? And is um, eventually, I guess he, he dies and then, and then we come around and we have the wall of the Vietnam uh, War Memorial is the wall now. And it all like resonates to the woman's name on the bathroom wall. And he, you know, he, he's been screwed over by both or, you know, like, like the imagery of taking the phone number of the, of the easy woman and taking it all the way out and bringing it all the way back to reference that again is, I mean, I don't, think there's I'm not saying there's something wrong with that but I'm saying that that's where women exist in his in his vision you know they they represent something they don't actually have their own lives so it's not fair to call him a misogynist or is I don't it know. I don't I, of course but it depends on, I mean, some people say so, and I, I, I didn't, I don't know him well enough, or I didn't have enough experience with them to, to, to come down one way or the other. But it, in, in the same way that a lot of artists um, use the idea of woman and aren't particularly interested in the ideas of woman, yes, women, yes, yes, yes. Um, that's kind of how um he viewed most women that's that that's my opinion but i and i and i and i admit to only having you know my my scholarly insight onto it as opposed to really personal insight with him now you mentioned susan messing yes she's probably one of the first women i don't know i mean what i know of course we've got jane morris Yes, well, leading the way with the ECT, um, but uh, uh, she and Rachel Mason are such standouts uh, yes, in the yes. field. And can you talk a little bit about Susan and without, and and also a little bit about Rachel because she's now one of the heads of the new IO. Yeah, I know that's a whole thing. Well, um, I know Susan pretty well. I've talked to her over the years. Um, when I first talked to her, she, you know, I was, I was saying, you know, women are at a disadvantage, women are at a disadvantage. And she was saying, no, you just tough it out. You know, you just have to be as aggressive as they are. You just don't complain. Take, you know, if you're, if you're, um, cast or endowed as a prostitute, be the best damn prostitute you can be. Or if you're endowed as a mother, you know, mothers can be other things, you know, mother, you can be what you choose to be, even with whatever endowment you're given. And um, I don't, I don't sit around and whine about it. I take charge, right. And she also shared that she had um, something called defenses and escapes, which is ways to um, evade um, the power plays where your ideas just get run over by other people on stage or you are forced into uh, a position like I had been. Um, so so I, I was saying, you know, when when I, I was in the scene that said, get on your knees, I, I, I couldn't think fast enough. I couldn't um, undo yes and in my mind fast enough. I didn't understand how I might have been able to get out of of the humiliating thing, even though he had um, endowed me with um, this very passive, um, obedient kind of um, character. And Sharna Halpern would say this all the time. She says, you know, if, if a man comes out and says, um, honey, where's dinner? You say, um, Dear, I've asked you not to call me honey in the White House, where, you know, be be the president of the United States, you know, don't, <laughs> don't let 
don't let those usual things where pe- the women are always in doubt as the mother and the wife and the girlfriend um, twist it, you know, con- take control of it, right? Um, but I've had issues with the no- that notion because in some ways, why should women always have to be on the defensive that way? You know, why should you always feel like, oh, here comes something, let me, how am I going to dodge this? Or how am I going to, you know, re- rework this? And um, I don't know, I think um, the expectation that every woman who wants to do improv should just tough it out, you know, something I wasn't going to subscribe to, but I really admired Susan Messing and how she did. I, I saw her in a show once, and I'll never forget it because she was endowed as a, as a woman who had no arms and no legs. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, this is the, you know, ultimate disempowerment of the woman on stage, right? And she um, s- s- continued to seduce this, a man just with her tongue and her head. She was just like, come on over here, you know, come over. She just would not she would not be disempowered. She would just use whatever she had to be uh, a powerful figure. And she just, um, I do really, really admire that. Um, I mean, Rachel, I don't know as well. Um, I know that she's another tough cookie. Yes. And kind of the idea is stop whining, you know, and just get get aggressive, be strong, don't allow uh, yourself to be manipulated. And, um, and so not particularly sympathetic to, in some ways to what I um, have been saying needs to change. For example, you know, the, the idea is, no, we don't have to change the rules. What we have to do is um, own our power, you know, and, and not allow ourselves to be, uh, yeah. Um, which is a certain kind of improvisation where you're sort of meeting, meeting power with power, which isn't the only incarnation of improvisation that you might want to have. You might want to have you know, meet support with support, you know, right? ideally, it's sort of like, um, and there were a number of classes about, for women about how to be more aggressive and improv and how to really, uh, oh, yeah, Susan taught one at the annoyance. And there have been there are many classes about take up more space, women take up space, women be uh, more confident, meet women in um, and um, but I'm I'm kind of where are the classes for men about don't bulldoze, you know, don't dominate. And it's kind of like all of the self-defense classes women take to not be attacked in this, you know, late night in the street. But you want to say, where are the classes for men about don't, yes. you know, yes. don't uh, be violent toward women, you know. So anyway. It, 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 yeah, you don't want people to just be, um, oh, he's doing this to me, you know, <laughs> you don't want it to be too, too, um, um, disempowered, you know, uh, but I also think that the, the notion that you have to have defenses and escapes is sort of, um, unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, um, getting back to the book, and I, I think this is just the first of our interviews, Amy, because we <laughs> just touched the very beginning, you know, back with Compass and David and Paul Sills and Viola. Um, you know, initially when I saw improv, it was a bunch of white guys standing around and even the TV show finally had Wayne Brady, but right. Um, and the clever title, Whose Improv Is It Anyway? I, I just love that. 
And in your book, you reference so many of the people I just adore in the improv world. Like one is Michael Gelman, um, mm -hmm. just so many terrific people. So I'm, I'm hoping we can have another chat sometime sure. to continue this. We'll do part two, I hope. <laughs> I mean, what I, I would love to mention in, in part one and part two is that I'm working on a new book now. Yes. It's going to be called Improv for the 21st Century. And I have a book contract. I mean, it, it's supposed to be coming out this coming summer. Wow. And it's uh, in response to, um, first of all, you know, what's happened since the 2001 publication of Who's Improv Is It Anyway? Are we still struggling with gender issues and so forth? And when that book, my first, my book came out, I had a number of negative responses on Amazon reviews saying, oh, come on you know, the, these sexist things are isolated incidents. She doesn't understand how improv works. So she must not like men. I mean, there's, there was a whole lot of uh, dismissal of what I was saying. And then when the big Me Too explosion happened in Chicago in 2016, where, um, I don't know if you followed that, but like where women were, were writing in about, all the creepy things that have been yes, done yes. to them, right? Yeah. Hundreds, and hundreds of women saying this, I was sexually harassed, uh, you know, so even beyond being bulldozed on stage or stereotyped on stage, there was actually actual sexual assault things going on. Um, and it was a big upheaval. And it was kind of, hey, but I, I said this, you know, in 2001, I said this and no one wanted to support me or that's not true, but, but I had a lot of critics at the time and now it, you know, it's undeniable. And what do I, what should I be doing now? I should follow up and kind of say, where are we now? And where are we going in terms of inclusion and all those issues. So anyway, that's what I'm working on. I'm working on. Oh, that's wonderful. The next step. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Well, there's absolutely a part two because we really, you know, we didn't get into a lot of things about race and cultures and, and all the other aspects that you covered so brilliantly 20 years ago and revisiting. So um, we met at a Patty Styles workshop. Yes, she's wonderful. He's a wonderful person. And that's the beauty of Zoom now that we can take classes with people from all over the world. So um, in addition to working on your book, Amy, what are you doing right now? What, where's your? Well, I, that's kind of mostly what I'm doing right now uh, because I retired um, from my job as a, a professor at um, a small college in Minnesota. So I just retired. So, so my focus is on the book, on my daughter, um, on, you know, uh, what will be my next phase in life. If I ever move from this house full of stuff. Um, and another thing sort of on my long to-do list is to go back to the plays that I've written and, um, revise them if need be and, and try to send them out. I mean, I would, I would put them on, but then I'd put them in the drawer. You know, I never tried to get productions of them. So that is on my, on my longer list. Yeah. And, and since I mentioned, I met you at an improv class. Do you take improv classes occasionally? To I do. Well, especially as I'm researching this new book uh, and also, you know, the silver lining of the cloud of COVID is all kinds of classes online from um, people that I could never have reached in person, right? I can take a class from some a teacher in London, in you know, in Australia, or um, and I'm hoping they're going to sustain some of the online opportunities now as we're sort of beginning to be back in in person because it's created a, a lot more access, not only for 
it's created more access for people around the country. It's created more international collaboration and interaction, which is really cool. It's created more access for people with disabilities, you know, and it's not the same. I think improv, you know, true improv needs to be in person, needs to be, you know, human to human in the real, in the real life. But when uh, you don't have that, this has opened a lot of other doors in really cool ways. Absolutely. I live in a little small town in Florida and there's just no place to play. Um, really? So this is, I studied, I started studying online way before the pandemic and was doing Skype classes with improvisers I wanted to learn from. So I'm an improv junkie. (laughs) Well, Amy, this has been such a fantastic visit today and I'm serious. I want to get us on again and talk more about some of the issues and issues coming up in your new book. And you're such a model for women, a positive, powerful woman getting the word out. And I, I admire you so much. I really oh, do. Thank you. So That's much. encouraging. I appreciate that. Oh, no, absolutely. And so I'll say adieu for today, but we'll be talking to you again really soon. And okay. any, any words out there for women improvisers who may be still struggling? Oh, um, find your people. I mean, that's one of the new things. One of the big deals that's n- new now is there are more ways of connecting in, with other people who are on the same wavelength. You're not alone anymore. You know, find the find your people and and do your thing. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I'll be talking to you again. Take care, Amy. Thank you, Margot.